Hey everybody, what's good, Classic City? Welcome to another episode of Athcast. Yet another episode, second one this week. I am your host, Matt Pulver, all by my little lonesome here on this one. And I'm just popping in here at the beginning just to introduce the second part, the conclusion of Helen's House. Now, if you are a new listener, please do go back and listen to part one before part two. It doesn't really work without listening to part one first. Also, if you're a new listener or if you're an old listener and you haven't yet subscribed, please do hit that subscribe button. It costs you nothing and it will alert you when new episodes drop. And that's it for me here at the top. Now for the conclusion of Helen's House. There's been a lot of history, so we're going to return again to the present, the near present, last fall, to the days leading up to the public hearings for the New Life House of Hope. Jada Fiorentino, the executive director of the New Life House, recalls walking a tightrope. Jada was caught completely off guard. She was entirely blindsided when she learned that the New Life House would have to close unless the residents were subjected to a series of public hearings, after which the mayor and commission would decide their fate. It was all just too much. There's no handy pamphlet that they give to people like Jada. There's no simple instructions that you somehow automatically know. She was in trouble, the house was in trouble, and most importantly, her women were in trouble, and now she had to figure out how to tell the residents. Because without the testimony of the residents, the New Life House would stand no chance. Their stories of hope and success at New Life had to be heard. They had to be delivered. But residents are supposed to remain anonymous while in recovery. This is crucial. This is important. And the hearings would require speakers to give their names. In public. Broadcast on television. And sharing your, your, your darkest traumas, your, your vulnerabilities and your fears and your challenges and your failures, all of that, sharing that in a public meeting, again, broadcast on television, is something beyond a lot of people. It's just too much. And, and let's be real. No one else is asked to expose themselves and their struggles in that way publicly just to continue living where you're at. No one else has to do that. No one else living in Athens has to do that. And here is where the tightrope that Jada found herself walking got the thinnest. Jada was terrified that this sudden uncertainty, this very real threat to the house, could completely derail some of the residents, have them lose their way. So she waited until the last minute to inform them about the public hearings that they'd be participating in. I didn't want to tell them before because I didn't want anybody to get scared, you know. Um, These women had nowhere to go. They have nowhere to go. Like, they're trying to get back on their feet. And to stop them in the middle of that process would be horrifying to tell them I know you've saved $600 and you need 12 and you still you're just about to get your license but I got to put you back on the street Um, that is discouraging and hopeless and I I don't know how many would stay sober in that pretense that's really discouraging and if if they're not going to stay sober in that pretense what difference does it make if we're in a neighborhood where drugs are if you're going to put them in the street (laughs) let's take a moment to meet Jada Fiorentino the executive director of the New Life House of Hope, who's long and 
awful battle with trauma and addiction eventually lifted her up to a position to save those still trapped. The New Life House of Hope was forged in trauma and suffering and in the darkness of addiction that is now swallowing millions and millions of Americans. But Jada is turning that pain into healing. My dad died before I was born, um, and I grew up with a stepfather. My mom got with my stepdad, and he was evil. He was a tyrant. So um, when he wasn't hitting my mother, he was hitting me. Um, There was some sexual abuse there from the time I was 12 until I was 18. Um, Well, 16, rather. Um, Because when I was 16, uh, I left and finally left, but I was in and out of their house, in and out of foster care, in and out of foster homes, um, and then they would send me right back. So he had money, so there was that. Um, but I was never told I love you, I'm sorry, or taught like normal people things. Um, I had a chip on my shoulder, I was a victim, um, and I went to the streets and I did what people on the streets do. I started looking for ways to heal the the wounds and the trauma and the pain and I thought it was normal if you knew my life you'd give me drugs you know if you knew what I've been through you'd let me drink you know if you um so uh I you know there were certain tools and stuff I just didn't really have um as time rocked on I started getting in trouble and going to to jails and prison um and I thought that maybe getting married and having children that'll save me that'll that'll fix me and um it certainly didn't and so, um, I, you know, I had kids, I started dragging through the mud with me as well. Cause husbands would leave, you know, and they couldn't tolerate me either. Um, I was miserable to be around. Um, and so I, uh, at this point, I'm probably on pills and heroin at this point, but I'm going to work sometimes. Um, I can hold a job for a period of time, but I hadn't hit rock bottom yet. Um, and what happened after that is I, um, I finally went to jail and somebody, um, I was actually going to commit suicide. I, I had enough and I, uh, took a bottle of pills and I woke up and I was mad because I couldn't even do that right. Like I couldn't even kill myself. Right. Like something's wrong with me. I knew something was wrong, but I didn't know how to fix it. Um, and it never, the notion never occurred to me that if I stopped doing drugs, because if I stopped doing drugs, the pain started and there was no way I could do that. I, it was just not going to happen. So, um, I went to jail and I talked to this lady in there and she told me about the program and told me about a program I could get into. And, um, and so I agreed. I was like, whatever, whatever works, whatever I got to do. So, um, I got out, I started taking, you know, mental health medication, which helped. Um, and I had to get on mat meds also medicated assistant treatment. Um, and I went to counseling and I started a program and they told me if I left the program, I was going to prison. So that was helpful. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, um, you know, I learned how to be a mom and a wife and a, and a mother uh, or a mother, a, a sister, a friend. Um, I couldn't have done those things before I went to that program. Um, I didn't know how to pay bills. Um, everybody I ever got money from, I just didn't pay them back. You know, I, I just, I didn't learn basic skills. I didn't know that it wasn't all about me, that there was other people in the world. I just was very 
primitive. Um, and so I, I had to walk through some forgiveness of my family, my parents, um, myself. Um, and I worked the 12 steps um, and did a lot of praying. And I learned about a God that I could tolerate and that I wasn't so angry with anymore. Um, but as I started going on, I, I started to feel so much better and I started to see my life improve. I was able to get a driver's license and get a car and go to work and just simple things. Um, so I started my own company. I have my own cleaning service, Team Clean Athens. And, um, and a lot of the girls from in recovery work there. So that's a good thing. <laughs> and it started to grow and things started just improving. Um, I knew that I want, I couldn't keep what I have and unless I give it away. And that's what I was taught. And I get the, that behind it because we stay in our heads a lot, you know, and if I'm helping somebody else, it can't be all about me. In the last episode, you would have heard residents of the new life house at city hall praising the house and the program, but more specifically, praising Jada personally for her unique ability to shepherd women toward recovery. It seems a, a gift that she has. I just knew that this was my my calling. I'm, I'm good at this. There isn't really much I haven't been through. I can relate with the women. Um, and when they tell me, no, you don't understand. No, I do understand. I absolutely understand. There's a lot more I understand. And I tell them my story and, and they listen. And that's the camaraderie behind it, I think, is that if well, you start trying to tell me, you know, try to help me and and try to explain to me what's well, okay, it's going to get better. Just saying that we we're like, well, how do you know? How could you possibly understand? There's a lot of um, I know I went to a treatment center one time when I was 30, just a little dry out phase. And I remember a man coming to try to help me. And he said, well, I've studied all about you. And I that was it. I shut down. I didn't want to hear anything that came out of his mouth. But we, we absolutely want to hear from the addict who has suffered, who has walked a mile in our shoes and made it to the other side. And so my goal is to prove that this can be done, that, that I can take the mess of a life that I was in and turn it into something beautiful and powerful that helps other people. I want to prove that there is, there is hope to these other ladies. Like, if I can do it, you can do it. And, um, and I was addicted pretty bad, you know, um, and I was going to die. But she didn't. And she turned that pain into a way to help others. I spoke with some of the residents of the New Life House, and this woman's story was another demonstration of the power of recovery in a place like New Life and with a person like Jada. Now, I can't reveal her name, so we'll just call her Sarah. But I mean, so I mean, I've never had nothing, no kind of goal beside who could get the dope man's fast enough. You know what I'm saying? That was my goal. You know, I had family, but the drugs took over my life and, and just it made my life, it was a living hell. You know what I'm saying? But I mean, with God and Jada, I'm telling you, it's just I've been able to turn things around and my family's so proud of me. It's all coming back together. Um, God's giving me back what the devil stole from me. And I'm just blessed beyond words. And this place is the reason for it. And now, like Jada, She's turned her pain and her trauma into being there for others. Sarah has been made house mom or, or house parent after achieving a sturdy sobriety at New Life 
And now she's shepherding others to the safety and peace that she's found. If you told me that um, two years ago, I'd said you done bumped your head. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I was out in the streets doing dope. I mean, just, you know, living a criminal lifestyle and just praying every day I didn't go to jail, just trying to get my next fix. If you could have told me that I'd be giving people drug tests, alcohol tests, checking curfews, checking uh, house chores, making sure everybody was okay, and giving people, like, good talks, you know, and uplifting them. So if you tell me I was doing that two years ago, I told you you were crazy. But, I mean, by God and with Jada's help, here I am, you know. So I was just a living testimony, you know what I mean? If there's any successful drug war in America, it's being fought by soldiers like Jada, who makes more soldiers like Sarah, who in turn makes her own new soldiers. You find this over and over again among people in recovery, where those who have succeeded in saving themselves so often turn back towards saving those behind them, those still trapped. Again, this is where any successful drug war is going to be fought, by people like Jada and Sarah, not by militarized police and, and mass incarceration. Now, over 40 years of of the so-called drug war has done more to destroy black families and communities like Brooklyn than actually stem the flow and consumption of drugs. It has been a almost total failure on that front. Linda Davis can point you to homes in Brooklyn that were lost by families due to those harsh penalties of the drug war. A war against addiction, not the old drug war must be fought and fought now things have gotten so so bad this drug crisis now spares no one young old black white rich middle class lower income men women it doesn't matter it spares no one <laughs> it get worse and worse you don't matter you don't matter you know it was just a few months ago when i interviewed folks at jet cuts the barbershop on hawthorne avenue just across the street from that old baptismal pool I told you about in part one. I could have very well been standing on what used to be the farmland of Linda's grandfather. And to a one in this barbershop, everyone named the worsening drug crisis as the most acute problem in Athens. I spoke to Tony Dorsey, who struggled mightily with addiction in his past, and he explained how much worse the drug crisis has gotten in just the last handful of years in his community. I think the, 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 the drug problem going on in Adam right now is very high power. Um, me being a junkie myself, me being an addict, I smoked the cocaine for 30 years, and I st- I'm still alive, but these folks smoking fentanyl and, and, and the day, and they dead in 45 minutes. So these folk that didn't now, I don't know what, who making this, who making this, this, this dope out here. Whatever they got going on out here, they, they need to try to deal with that. They need to stop that man. They need to try to stop For yeah, real, for real. And Linda Davis explains what she's seen in Brooklyn and elsewhere in Athens. And I can't tell you how many people this community has buried in the last 10 years. I can't begin to tell you. It is amazing. Um, and amazing is a horrible word, but it is the, as I see them now, I am getting to a place where I can see the people with mental illness and I can spot them right away. And I know that there is no help, right? Yeah, they, they can get into a program, but they're not going to be able to navigate that program. They literally share 
what does it take to get immediate help in a, in a situation? I have heard him give advice to people about just go out here and jump in front of a truck. That'll get you four days in the hospital. Jada sits in a front row seat to the crisis. And with the emergence of these ever more powerful opioids, fentanyl especially, Jada knows the stakes of all this all too well. And now with the opioid crisis, it's not like you just have a slip anymore. You can't afford to go back out there and just sample it or just have a setback or oopsie, I messed up. You know, back a few years ago, maybe, but not now. You will die. And um, and it's no joke. It's life or death for us. We have to be on top of our game. I know people that have died here in Athens recently. You know, it's sad. It happens all the time. My husband's died of an overdose, both my cousins and my best friend. And that's all overdose. That's not heart attack or, you know, car wreck or anything. That's all overdose. And I've had to bury these people. You're either in recovery now or you're dead. That's that's the reality of it. Unless you're an alcoholic and you still have a lot of chances of dying. Now, I'm not taking away from that, but I'm saying with the opioid crisis, it's, it's bad. But it is worth pointing out that the New Life House of Hope is a business. Jada's dedication is undeniable. And the residents celebrate her. They, they extol her. But others on Peach Street will remind you that the house is a business. It is a profit-bearing business. But it's not a home business. It's not Jada's home. She doesn't own the house. She rents the property to conduct business there. And, as I've teased, it's Miss Helen's former home that Jada now rents. Linda remembers it was a Jim Walter home that Helen ended up in, a prefab home bought from a catalog. Jim Walter homes were mail-order houses, small prefabricated homes that could be bought out of the Sears catalog. The little Jim Walter home Helen ended up relegated to just outside the property line of her old nine-acre farm, or out behind it was a, a sort of a banishment. They took Helen's farm and she was left in a mail-order home. Linda also recalls, though, that Miss Helen made the best of her new home, and while her farm had been taken, she planted a majestic new garden that thrived and brought beauty to the end of Peach Street. There was new life at Peach Street's dead end. And in that way, it makes a sort of poetic sense that the women in Jada's recovery home now flourish in Miss Helen's old house. Jada herself, whose chances at joy were practically extinguished as a little child, has found for the first time peace and spiritual prosperity. Jada, like so many of her residents, so late in life, now blooms, as do so many others in the house, themselves for the first time. It is, I guess, something like a garden. Miss Helen's old home, though, had fallen into disrepair by the time the new owner bought it. Jada showed me photos of how far the house had fallen. It seems that it had become a place for squatters and, and a place for addicts to shoot up. This house used to be run down, dilapidated, have homeless people in it, and they were finding needles in their yard. So we've remodeled it, and I don't know, it's pretty quiet here. And now the house is renovated and refurbished. A good bit of money has been invested into the property, and the tight rules in the New Life program keep the house itself quiet. 
even if there is a a new busyness that surrounds the house and frustrates the neighbors. Linda Davis was even surprised to learn that the house contained ten residents when she first heard it at a public hearing. Jada makes sure to stress that the women in the house are not immediately moving from the, the deepest, darkest depths of addiction straight to the new life house. And she emphasizes the tight policies at the house that maintain both healthy living and produce a quiet house. I make sure that you are ready to recover by the time you get to me um, and that we are doing something about your problem. You know, and I have two other ladies that work for me. I have two house moms. Um, So there's case management done, like short-term goals, long-term goals. How can we serve you while you're in this recovery? And we're not here to serve anybody or hurt anybody or, you know, um, and we're held accountable for that. You know, like if, if somebody's drinking or using, we take care of that issue. That doesn't, that doesn't go on, you know, because it's a safe and sober place to stay. That's what it is. You know, we can't guarantee that our neighbor's safe and sober, but you can guarantee, you know, this place is. There's a sign in and out sheet. You have to sign in and out stating where you're going, coming or going. Um, and you have seven days when you get here to find a job. Um, so, um, and if you're struggling, again, you have a caseworker that, that can help you with that. Most people don't have a problem at all. Um, they're ready to work. Yeah, you have a chore you have to do. You have to be up by 7. You have chores done by 8. Um, and if you don't have a job, you have to be out from 9 to 4 looking for a job, looking for work. Um, and then once you get your job, you know, you have your schedule or whatever, there's meetings uh, right up the street um, at 7 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 3.30, 5.30, and 8.30. So you can basically navigate your schedule around a meeting. You have to attend five outside meetings, and then we have two inside house meetings. And Tuesday night is housekeeping, you know. So-and-so's leaving her shoes. Sally's leaving her shoes on my bed again. And we discuss, you know, can't do nothing about Sally snoring, but we can make, you know, Sally, can you please get your shoes off so-and-so's bed? Just teaching people (laughs) life skills. Or maybe Sally doesn't know to take a shower. It's been a long time. She's been in the woods, you know. So we have to teach Sally. You know, every day, you know, Sally, this is what we do. But whatever problem Sally might be struggling with, Jada reminds us that the women are just people like the rest of us. I just wish people understood that, you know, that we're not going to rob them. We're not, you know, we're not we're not scary. You know, we're just regular people. We're moms. We're your sisters. We're your aunts. We're your wives. We're everyday people. We're we're the people that, you know. I would love to wrap this story up with a tidy conclusion, an ending that that ties everything up neatly and and makes a point. I'd love to give y'all a conclusion that's conclusive, but I can't. As I said early on, I think before the first part, I'm an opinionated person. I will tend to come down on one side or the other of an issue, even if it's complex. If need be, I'll think about it, read about it, whatever, until I do come up with a a judgment. Now, I'm not saying these conclusions are always right at all, but that's what I tend to do. But this issue just stumps me endlessly. It's the way that it pits these two groups against each other. I was struck by how Kimberly Davis described the problem. This wouldn't happen in a boulevard. This wouldn't happen in five points. And so it's very much a thing of 
um, showing who we value. And we're valued one step above them, in my opinion. Two populations who have always been considered lesser by those who live more comfortably and more free in Athens. These two populations are left to fight it out. Nobody in Five Points or Boulevard or Cobham or Crystal Hills is troubled by any of it. And to help one, harm must come to the other. There is no just solution. After more than 150 years of white theft in black communities, it's hard not to see this as yet another instance of black wealth being threatened by decisions made from above and as a consequence of a whole legacy of white supremacy. But to throw the women out of their recovery process, to potentially even throw them out into the street, feels impossible to consider. I guess if there's anything I can say to conclude is that this is all a result of not recognizing injustice and harm in the moment, in the present, as it's happening. The problem of Peach Street is so intractable in the present because the sins of the past weren't ever corrected. This is hundreds of years of white supremacy at work. It's a history of patriarchy and misogyny that seems to so often be an essential ingredient in the trauma of the women at the New Life House. It's the economic disparities that create this caste-like division between the, the hopeful and the damned. And it's a drug crisis that we fought in the worst possible way for half a century now. And then here we are, in the present, with what feels like an impossible decision to make. I'll leave y'all with this. I had a member of the planning commission reach out to me after the first part came out. And they told me it was the hardest decision they've ever made on that body. I consider myself lucky not to have to make a decision on this. But the mayor and commission will. They will have to rule on this in June. They have all the power on this. So maybe you've come to a determination on this issue. Maybe you've found more clarity on this than me. In that case, you should reach out to your commissioner and let that be known. As I'm sure so many of them are having their own difficulties on this tough, tough issue. 